Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 to 28, uh, is our scripture text for the sermon this morning. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, the risen Lamb, who sits at your right hand, uh, pleading for us. And we pray that as we read this text and think about this text together, that you would give us a clearer sight of Jesus, a clearer vision of his work for us right now, uh, pleading for us at your right hand, praying for us, interceding for us. Help us to, to see that, to rest in that, to rejoice in that in a way that brings you glory and honor. Work in us to that end by your spirit now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. The word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Hope. Hope is something that we need right now. It's really something we need all the time, but it's more obvious for more people today than it was a year ago. In some ways, hope is actually not complicated, but that doesn't mean it's easy. It may be difficult to have hope, even while it's relatively simple. It's so simple, I'm even going to give you a formula. Now, I'm not a big formula guy. I don't like formulas, actually. Life is too complicated. It's too messy for formulas. And, of course, I could nuance this one to death. But I do think there is a fairly straightforward formula for hope, and the writer of Hebrews has been giving it to us again and again throughout the book, and that's this. Look to Jesus, nurture hope. Meaning as you look to Jesus, as you grow in your understanding of who he is, you will nurture hope within now, this brings up all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Like, well, how do you look? And who is this Jesus? And what is this hope? And what if it doesn't seem to grow? Am I doing something wrong? And some of the short answers are, well, you look by seeing Jesus in the scriptures, by believing in him, 
Our hope is the, the hope of restoration and resurrection, of dwelling in the presence of our Father on the last day. And patience is required, right? Nothing good grows in a moment. In due season, you will reap if you do not give up. But I want to spend uh, most of our time this morning on the question, who is this Jesus? That's the, that's the primary question that our writer is dwelling on in the book of Hebrews, and especially this section of Hebrews. And so let me expand the question just a little bit. What is it about looking to Jesus that will nurture hope? Well, when we look to Jesus this morning, we will see three things. You can find that in your bulletin, the outline in your bulletin. Uh, three things. Your Father is working, your sins are forgiven, and your Savior is pleading. So look to Jesus and nurture hope. Uh, what is it about looking to Jesus that will nurture hope? Number one, in Jesus we see that your Father, our Father, is working. Now, I don't know about you, but I... I get easily confused, especially when there's a problem at hand. I get mired in the details. I get lost in all the complications. I'm often hesitant about the best way forward. Now, if that is true when trying to plan a family vacation, how much more is it true when trying to deal with the problem of our sin? What is the best way forward? How do we, how do we deal with this? I mean, my, my sin is an offense. My guilt is great. Since misery is tangible now more than ever, since slavery is, is inescapable, the, the bondage to sin that we find ourselves in by nature, who, who shall deliver us from this body of death, Paul says. When, when we so decidedly and persistently choose against God to indulge the flesh or to pursue, pursue sin or to pretend control, how can we be reconciled to our Father with such great and persistent offense. What's the way forward, right? How can I be rid of guilt? How can I be rid of addiction? How can I find joy out of life's tragedies? Well, we have three options, of course, because there always seem to be three options. Uh, one is despair, right? You just give up. That's option number one. It's what a lot of people choose to do, right? They turn in on themselves and they just give up altogether. They wallow in hopelessness. Option two, of course, is the opposite end. It's, it's figure it out, right? It's roll up your sleeves and get to work. And what this means is, is you're left, of course, to your own wisdom and your own abilities. But when it comes to our sin and being reconciled to our Father, you might begin to think, okay, I can do this. Uh, if only I spend a little more time reading my Bible, then I'll be good with God. Or if only I get more, uh, give a little more to charity, right? And do good to my neighbors right now, right? Then, then surely God will be happy with me. If only I fight for the right causes, right, whatever they may be, then I'll have my in with, with God. The problem here, of course, is that, you know, Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, because of sin, what often seems right to us is actually wrong. What seems like giving is actually death dealing. And the way of working harder can never get us right with God. When it comes to dealing with sin, we are powerless. Uh, Psalm 49 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly. It can never suffice that he should live on and forever, live on forever and never see the pit. You see, you have nothing to give to God in exchange for your forfeit soul. 
And so option number two, right, rolling up your sleeves and getting to work is really a delusion. It's, it's living a lie. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, those first two options make an assumption. The, the assumption is I'm on my own. Whatever problems I have to face, I face them alone. And so I either despair because I realize I don't have what it takes or I roll up my sleeves and get to work. But if I want to avoid despair or the delusion that, that I can solve this on my own, we have to go with option three. Right? Option three is look to the solution that God has provided. Jesus is God's answer to our problem of sin. He is the answer to our problem of sin's guilt, sin's power, sin's penalty. And we see this in our text this morning because here we see Jesus appointed as a priest according to the oath of God. Again, look at verses 20 to 22. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. See, the writer's argument is actually pretty simple here. He's just saying Jesus was made, an oath, made a priest by an oath of God. Uh, you find that oath in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, the old covenant priests, that, that was not so, right? They were priests, but not by any direct word of God, uh, but because of the law. Uh, now, now, it was God's law, of course, uh, but each individual uh, simply came under the same law month after month, year after year. But Jesus was appointed a priest by a direct and unbreakable oath of the Father. And think for just a minute how this nurtures our hope. If our hope is, is reconciliation and, and resurrection, if it's dwelling in the presence of our Father on the last day, how does this help? Well, our Father has appointed Jesus to get us there. Our Father has sworn an oath that Jesus would be our high priest to deal with our sin and to bring us to himself. And that's what priests did, right? They stood in the gap. They acted as mediators to bring reconciliation. And here is the guarantor of a better covenant, meaning he himself guarantees the fulfillment of God's covenant promises for us. And this is our Father's will, right? If it were not, he would not have sworn an oath. He, he would not have given his word. He would not have set Jesus apart to this end if he did not want Jesus to accomplish this work. And so here's the first encouragement. Your father is working. He has appointed Jesus as the answer to your greatest problem, the problem of sin. And if God the Father is on the move, nothing is going to stop him. The Father has planned for our reconciliation and appointed the Son to that end. Take heart. Be encouraged. Have hope. God will fulfill what he started. What is it about looking to Jesus that will nurture her hope? One, when we look to Jesus, we see that our Father is working. But two, we also see that our sins are forgiven. Some people face discouragement because they feel like they are in this alone. They don't see that the Father is there working for their good. Other people face discouragement because they don't feel like the Father could ever really love them. He may be working for some people's good, but he's not working for my good. Maybe you have a sense of, of the greatness of your sin, or maybe you, you have a sense of the, the glory of God's holiness, 
and you just know I can never live up here. No matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, I will always fall short. The weight of guilt is heavy. And Christians and non-Christians alike often live weighed down under the burden of guilt. We live life constantly trying to prove ourselves or to justify our existence on planet Earth, to say with our lives that I deserve a place at the table because we, we feel so guilty and so burdened. Hence why it is so important to know not only is your father working, but our sins are forgiven. We need to know both that Jesus is God's provision and that Jesus is our propitiation. The Father has appointed Jesus to remove our sin and guilt. But, but how does he do that, right? How does he accomplish that end? What does Jesus do for us to the end of reconciliation and ultimately resurrection? Well, look at verses 26 to 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, at first, notice here what these verses say about the character of Jesus. First, that Jesus is holy, right? When, when something was holy, that meant it was designated for a particular use in God's temple. It was set apart for God's purposes. And when someone is holy, it means essentially the same thing, set apart for God's purposes. And, and yes, it means living up to a certain moral standard, but it means so much more than that. Jesus always did what pleased his father. He came to do his father's will. He, his life was continually and completely oriented, not toward this age, but toward his father in heaven. He was holy. And the next few descriptions flow out from that. That, that means that he was innocent, right? Like a lamb without blemish, fit for the father's presence. He was unstained, undefiled by sin. He was clean in the Old Testament language. He was separated from sinners. And now we have to understand this one rightly, right? Because Jesus came eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. He was a friend of sinners. He received sinners. And yet he himself was not a sinner. And so he is in a class by himself, as we say. But not only that, right? Not only all of that, but he has been exalted above the heavens, the writer says. Jesus, after his death on the cross, was raised from the dead and then raised up into heaven. To say that he has been exalted above the heavens means something like above all those who dwell in the heavens, that is the angels. Jesus has been given authority even over the angels. All the heavenly beings have been placed under his feet. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, he says that Jesus has been raised and seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus has been given all authority and power and dominion. Nothing has been left outside of his rule. And this is the one whom God has appointed to act on our behalf. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is not like other men. He is not like other priests. Verse 25, 27 goes on to say that those other high priests offered sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. And imagine for a moment being a Levitical priest. 
because of the law, by birth, you were set apart as a priest. Uh, you were born as a priest, you would die as a priest. When it, when, it, when it came to your turn to work at the temple, you would travel to Jerusalem, and day after day, you would offer sacrifices, day after day, year after year. Nothing would ever change. You'd offer sacrifices of bulls and goats, sacrifices for your own sins, sacrifices for the sins of the people, uh, first for your own sins, so you could come before God, uh, then for the people's sins, so you can come before God on their behalf. And whatever the sacrifices did... It didn't seem to take away sin because the guilt of sin remained. Uh, not simply the sense of guilt, but the, the objective guilt, at least. And day by day, week after week, year after year, people would come to have their guilt removed and leave still bearing the weight of guilt. Because all the sacrifices really did was remind them of their guilt. We'll get to that in Hebrews. Hebrews will say that, that the sacrifices year after year were a reminder of guilt. You know, there were no chairs in the temple because the priest's work was never done. That was not so with Christ. Again, look at verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus doesn't offer sacrifices daily. He offered himself once for all. The, the, the language is, is slightly ambiguous, meaning it could be taken one of two ways, although the context makes it clear. It could be taken to mean he offered up a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of the people once for all. Uh, but, but that makes no sense out of what the writer has just said, that Jesus is holy and innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. No, he, he did make an offering, but not for his own sins, because he had none, and not of bulls and goats. He offered up himself for our sins once for all. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Paul says he became sin for us, and that he became a curse for us. Jesus, the Holy One, died for the unclean. This is the, the doctrine of, of substitutionary atonement, right? He, he offered himself for the sins of the people. He took our place. He was our substitute. As Isaiah put it, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sin was placed on him. In that moment, we found forgiveness. In that moment, we found freedom from sin's guilt. In that moment, we found freedom from sin's power. In that moment, we found freedom from sin's condemnation. In that moment, we found freedom from sin's penalty. By his wounds, you have been healed. And that means whatever you may feel, and if you have believed on the Lord Jesus, your guilt has been removed. You stand clean before the Father. Your sins are forgiven. And so believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, as Peter said on Pentecost. What is it about looking to Jesus that will nurture hope? When we look to Jesus, we, we see your Father is working, and your sins are forgiven. And third, your Savior is pleading. 
you know, some people have a different dilemma. They, they know in theory at least that we are not alone. Um, they, they know that Jesus died for sin, but they, they feel a disconnect, right? I mean, how could Jesus' death back then mean anything for their relationship to God right now? How could Jesus' work uh, completed many yesterdays ago have any meaning for our ever-present todays? If you believe what I believe uh, what I said about Jesus dying and rising and ascending, you still might object. Yeah, but that was two thousand years ago. What about today? Well, look at verses twenty-three to twenty-four. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The the writer begins in these verses to make yet another series of contrasts. The former priests, they were many, but Jesus is one. The former priests could not continue in office. Jesus is a priest Permanently. The former priests died. Jesus continues forever in light of his resurrection. And the point is that this makes Jesus a better priest. He alone holds his priesthood permanently because he alone lives forever. And yet it is the result of this that is so important that the writer points out in verse 25. Consequently, he Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, the result of Jesus' forever priesthood is a complete salvation. He can save to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, to make intercession is to, to plead on behalf of another. It's to, to intercede for them. And, and here is the point, right? In light of his appointment by the Father as our priest, in light of his death on the cross for our sins, in light of his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God, Jesus is pleading for us. He is pleading for us as our priest based on the merits of his blood day by day, every day from now and for eternity. Jesus is at the Father's right hand right now praying for you. He is pleading for you. Now, now it it gives us some comfort uh, when we have a friend whom we know is praying for us, but this is no mere friend. He is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the sinless one himself, the one who is well-pleasing to the Father, the beloved Son, the Lamb of God, the one who died and rose, the one who is seated on the throne in heaven. He is pleading for you. What is he he pleading? What What is he praying for? We see examples of Jesus praying for his people in the Gospels. Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. Jesus prayed for his crucifiers, that God would forgive them. Jesus prayed for the church's protection and unity. He he prayed for our sanctification. Jesus prayed that we would be with him and that we would see his glory. But I think what the writer is implying here is made plain by the context. Immediately after mentioning intercession, he mentions the position of Christ exalted above the heavens and the sacrifice of Christ is once offering up himself. What is Jesus praying there at the right hand of the Father? He is is pleading with the Father on our behalf based on the merits of his blood. And that's what we sing about in our hymns. 
Right? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. See, your father, your father is working. He has provided Jesus as our great high priest. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus has offered up the sacrifice for sin once for all that can truly remove guilt. And your Savior is now pleading on your behalf. Look to Jesus and nurture hope. And if God has done all this, if the Father has appointed Jesus to this end, if Jesus has borne our sins to this end, if he is our, as our great high priest is pleading to this end, how can it fail? Now, if it were on you, right, if it were on you to get to heaven, to reconcile yourself to the Father, and to raise yourself from the dead on the last day, we would have no hope. Despair or indulgence would be the only honest way forward. Eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. But it is not on you. Father has undertaken your cause and appointed his son to act on your behalf. The son has bled and died for sin, and he ever lives to intercede. Fear not, little children. It is your Father's good will to give you the kingdom, and he will do it. Hope in God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are at work. You have appointed your Son, and you are at work in and through him to accomplish our full salvation, to save us to the uttermost. We thank you, Father, for raising Jesus from the dead, that he might sit at our right hand as our great high priest, having completed his work, praying for us, interceding for us, his sacrifice being offered once for all. Father, help us to rest, to rest in the completed work of Christ at the cross and to rest in the continuing work of Christ in interceding for us as our great high priest. Help us to rest in that and find hope, hope that you are working for us and for our good and will bring about what you have promised on the last day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.